The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Well, good morning. How's everyone? Thank you, Randy. My name is Dale Miller. I'm one of the elders here at Doxa Church, and I'd like to welcome you as well. He always does that to me. It's a little joke on my height, so I'll put that down. Um, but uh, I appreciate uh, y'all being here. I get to teach uh, every once in a while. We, we believe in team uh, here. We hold team up as we serve really high. Uh, so it comes in with the teaching. Randy uh, usually communicates, but you'll see me up here some. You'll see Kramer up here some. You'll see Jonathan actually next week. Um, so uh, we just really hold that up as, as a group of, of believers that serve together uh, for God's glory. Um, and we believe in team. And so we, we just want to put that out front. But uh, I wanted, as Randy started sharing about his, his uh, fireworks history, I figured I've got to come up here and give one of my best fireworks stories, right? So I grew up as well in the country outside of Hemingway in, in a place called Center Crossroads, but it's actually got a T in it, but you don't pronounce it that way when you live there. But uh, so we, we did the same thing with fireworks, but we, we bottle rockets were the thing, and we would light them and hold them and then throw them, and that was the thing. So you had to be quick. You had to be quick on the light and throw. So, uh, so one... Uh, one night, we were at, at my house, me and my cousins. We grew up with, you know, just families, the thing when you live out in the country. That's just what it is. And so we were all out there, and, and a car was coming by, and we were throwing them. We were trying to time them at the car. And so I lit one, and I threw it, and it went down, and it blew up, like, right on the hood. And it was like, boom. It was like I had scored a goal kick, a penalty kick in the World Cup. I was running around. We were all running around like, ah, like the best thing ever. Well, actually, it was my uncle's car. So, needless to say, I was quickly, uh, rep, uh, well, uh, we grew up in the country, so there was a lot of whooping going along around those days, too, so, uh, so I definitely got in trouble, uh, but I figured I had to share that since Randy shared a, a story, and I'm happy to have my family here. Fourth uh, of July is a big weekend. We have a birthday uh, in our family. Right, we have a niece and nephew. They turned 14 this week. It was my father's birthday. Uh, he was born on July 4th, so it's always a good time together with family. I'm glad to see my mom here. She's a huge tennis fan, unbelievably, um, still playing, 72, still playing tennis, post-knee surgery, and I'm really excited to see her here because I know it's a sacrifice, because if you know what's going on right now, it's the finals of Wimbledon. So um, if you got uh, ESPN, like whatever that app is, and you can give her an update, I'm sure she'll be very happy if you just want to whisper some stuff to her. She would love that to see what the score is right now. So um, there's one other story I've got to tell um, about July 4th before, before we get rolling into the book of Nehemiah. And so uh, I, I've just been laughing, I've been thinking about it, I've been laughing and laughing, I can't stop laughing about it, so I'll try to get through it. So Friday, the family got together, I have a big family, so I have four older sisters, three of them are here right now, big family, 14 grandkids, and so we all went to Myrtle Waves for the day, for, to celebrate the birthdays for, for Shelby and Sam. So we got cabanas and stuff and doing the deal. So it's a full day out. And we're having a blast. Well, my, I have a sister, and she was brave enough to go on the big, tall water slides. You know, like if you're looking at the park, it's the black tubes. It's the tallest one in the park, right? And so she, she goes, and she comes, she comes walking back like this. Like, what, what happened? Well, she gets in the slide, right? And it's, it's the tallest one, the fastest one. And she slides down it, and she stops, she gets stuck in the tube. So she's got a decision to make. I'm either going forward into the dark, and she's like, no, no. I see some light that way. 
I'm crawling back. So I make it spiritual. She was praying the whole time, crawling up. She's army crawling through the water and comes back, pops at the top, about scares the lifeguard to death. He had never seen it before. Someone gets stuck in the tube. So the only saving grace she says that she has is that I wasn't up there. Because we're a family. If you fall, we're going to laugh at you. You know, that's just how we grew up. You know, we're not going to help you up. We're going to point and laugh and then maybe see if you're bleeding. But uh, she said the only thing that she's thankful for is that I wasn't there. And I'm thankful, too, because she probably would have thrown me over the top because I would not have been able to stop laughing. So we're uh, excited. That's our Myrtle Wave story. We had a great fourth. I hope you had a great fourth. We had a uh, gathering for Doxa, and if you were there, I was uh, um, really glad you were able to do that. We try to get together as a family. We hold community up high as a family, a church family as well. So let me get in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9. You don't have to turn there yet. I'm going to give some history. If you're, you're new here this morning, and just give you some context of the book itself. So Nehemiah. It's a historical book. Um, since in, if you're looking in, in the Old Testament towards the, the front half, which makes no sense because you think, well, that should be way in the back. But actually, historically, from a time period, it's about 400 years before Christ comes back. And so what was going on with the nation of Israel at that time? All right, so Israel had been uh, defeated, had been captured by the Babylonians, taken away into exile. Um, the, Jerusalem had been ransacked during that process. Um, so then... Babylonians are on the scene, and then all of a sudden the Persian kingdom empire comes up and takes over the Babylonian. So in context of our book in Nehemiah, the Persian empire is the ruling empire of the day. And so through this process, Jerusalem itself has been destroyed by, by countries and about enemies coming in. The walls of Jerusalem had been wrecked. Um, the city had been torn down. It was really in shambles. So Nehemiah, he was a Jewish uh, man serving in, in the Persian Empire under the king, Artaxerxes. So Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. So he's the right-hand man of the king. For example, he is actually tasting the wine, uh, making sure there's no poison in it. Uh, he has to be very, very, very trusted by the king because if not, if he's going to double-cross him, the king's out. And so there had to be a, a great trust. It was a, 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 he was very um, respected and he had a position of great honor and trust with the king. So he's serving the king, and uh, one day, we see in this in chapter 1, uh, a group of brothers come from Jerusalem, and they come in, and, and he asks them about the home country. He says, how, well, how, how's Jerusalem doing? And they, they, the report that he actually gets uh, really, really crushes him. And I'll, I'm going to go ahead and open up my Bible. I'm going to flip through Nehemiah some as we just talk about it to get us up to chapter 9. And then um, we'll keep rolling. But in, in Nehemiah chapter 1, the response that he gets um, from his brother says, The remnant there in the providence who have survived the exiles is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. So this conversation, this remark just absolutely crushes Nehemiah. He's taken, in, in verse 4 it tells us his response. It says, As soon as I heard these words... I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before God of heaven. So Nehemiah, we see he was quickly broken. He had a burden for, for Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah um, is continuing these 40 days to pray, to pray and to fast. And actually to start, we see in the book, he's starting to plan about how God, um, praying for God to restore the city and, and dreaming about how he would be involved in restoring the city of Jerusalem. So one day as Nehemiah is serving the king, 
Uh, he has the opportunity to share this burden. The king notices his sadness and, and approaches Nehemiah and, 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 and asks what's going on. And so Nehemiah is ready. He's ready. This is, Lord, this is my time. Lord, let this king have favor on, on me and your people. So he has the time to, to share the burden of wanting to go back and build the city of Jerusalem. And the king grants it. The king grants provision to do it and permission to do it. Sends him a letter, is able to go and build up the, um, the city of Jerusalem. And so we see quickly in, in, in chapter 2, Nehemiah shows up on the scene, and uh, he's coming with, with the provisions that the king has given him, given him, the letters to show the other governors what's going on. He's, he's allowed to come back and build this city, which is kind of odd in itself. You know, the other empires would, would send people out to exile, and, and so they couldn't rebuild and rebel. But the Persian Empire was kind of said, okay, we're going we're gonna to appease you, we're going to support you a little enough for you to still have hope and to support you uh, so you'll be loyal to us. So that was a, their kind of framework they worked out of. So uh, the Persian king did send them back. But when they showed up, the, the, we quickly see enemies to God's work in, in chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 10, um, the surrounding governors make a, a remark when they see what's going on. It, it, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And so we spent several Sundays going over, looking at that conflict, the opposition of, of these surrounding uh, governors that did not want to see the city uh, prosper. And we, we talked about that opposition, how it would come and how Nehemiah would lead the people, be a great leader, reflect on God and his greatness and how God would provide, he would, he would fight for them. And we see in chapter six, it was unbelievable, God did. God's good work prevailed as always. And we see it's an astounding 52 days that the whole wall of Jerusalem is rebuilt. But Nehemiah's call was much more than just to physically restore the city of Jerusalem. He was called to also restore the people themselves, to they restore, they actually spiritually restore the people. And so last week, we actually made the turn from focusing of rebuilding the wall to actually now we're going to, the back half of Nehemiah as we go through it as a church, we're going to focus on rebuilding the people, rebuilding the community itself. In chapter 7, uh, lists a bunch of people coming back from exile to repopulate the city. And then at the beginning of chapter 8, um, which Randy covered last week, we see all the people gathered as one man and listen closely to the word of God. I want to read that for us because that gives us kind of context of what we talk about today. Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm going to read verse 1 for us couple other verses. It says, All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day. Uh, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate. And from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So we see that last part. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And so what we see is always when it comes to revival and God moving in a people and, and really um, changing them and transforming, we see 
God's word proclaimed. And that's what we're going to see. We saw in eight, God's word proclaimed. And then chapter nine, what we're going to walk through is actually our response to God's word. And that's what we'll see what the response of Israel was to God's word. I'm going to pray before we settle into nine, and we'll keep going, all right? Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for um, how it transforms us, how it is living. Uh, Lord, we pray that as we sit under it this morning, that you would transform us, Lord. You would convict us of sin, um, show us where we are lacking, show us how to rightly respond to you and your word. We pray that, um, that your spirit would come and move upon us, Lord, that you would do only what you could do. In these moments, as, as I just kind of walk through here, try to serve the people, um, Lord, I pray that you would help me communicate clearly um, what was going on in, in, in this time and this history of your people and how that applies to us today. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I'm gonna start out with just the beginning of chapter nine, read a couple verses and then we'll move. So if you want to take your Bible now and go ahead and turn to Nehemiah chapter 9, be in verse 1. It may come up on the screen uh, for you, kind of, but if not, if you would, we have some Bibles in the back if you're interested in following through one as well. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. And on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled in fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and for another quarter of the day they made confessions and worshiped the Lord their God. So we see here in the opening um, the significance of this this time stamp of this day, uh, what's going on here it really shows that this is a unique event in the nation of Israel. So it's not really tied into any of the festivals they have or, or what they usually worship in their, their church calendar, um, but it was a unique event that, it, that God's word is really pointing us to. And so that's what we hope for a, a unique event to happen in Myrtle Beach. We pray for a unique event of revival for people to sit under God's word. If it be a part of Doxa Church, that we can be a part of that, we would love it. If not, but we just ultimately want God to see a movement a unique event in this community to open people's eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see some things in here about what they were doing. They were in sackcloth. So what, what in the world is that? What is the sackcloth? And I don't think I could ever get my wife to wear this, but it's, it's made of goat hair or camel hair, and it was very coarse and uncomfortable to wear. So it wasn't this fashionable. Uh, Justin was, was commenting on my shirt. I appreciate that, Justin, making me feel good before I get up here. But it wasn't as fashionable uh, is what you might think. It was actually was used to meant uh, it, to be uncomfortable, um, really coarse, and it was a sign, really, that you were uh, demonstrating repentance in your life. It was an outward sign. Um, and we also see they had earth on their heads. So what does that mean? Um, you know, it's not like our family where usually when earth is on their head, it's because they've had a tantrum tantrum outside of the lazy river at Wildwater and we are at Myrtle Waves and they're just throwing up grass everywhere because they hate the lazy river. So that's like earth on our heads, that's my family. Okay, that's what you're going to see. But earth on their heads here in the Bible is an example of being in great sorrow. So we see what's going on. We see, really see here in these opening verses the heart position of the people of Israel. And we see that they, 
In verse 2, it talks about they confess their sins, A. So we, caught, we see they're, they're confessing their sins. Then we also see B, that they, they confess the iniquities of their fathers. They continue to read the word of God. So for a quarter of the day, they're reading the word of God. And then for another quarter of the day, the response is confession and worship. So really, these first three verses really set the tone. And verses 4 through 37 is actually a description of that confession and worship. So we, have going on, we know what's going on. And then 4 through 37 actually describes the actual response of Israel. So we see in these verses, we'll see that the Lord has lifted up as creator. We'll see the Lord has lifted up as redeemer. We'll see the Lord has lifted up as lawgiver. We'll see the Lord has lifted up as disciplinarian, as savior, and as judge as we walk through these scriptures. And really these verses, if you're new to the Bible and, and haven't spent a lot of time uh, in the Old Testament and dealing with Israel, I mean, these verses are going to give you a snapshot of the history of Israel. It's really 15 specific events that happen historically and is recorded in the book of Genesis and recorded in the book of Exodus and Numbers. And as I sat down uh, to study and to, to prepare for this Sunday, you know, one of my processes is first is just to continue to just read through the whole text, just read through it, read through the whole chapter and to see where everything's going on. And as I sat down and read through it, I looked at the, you know, the title is The People of Israel Confess Their Sins. So I sat down and read through it and read to it and kept looking back at that title. And it just, it, something just caught me strange. It's, it's not really naturally what I would have done. It's not when I think of confession of sins, how it would flow, you know, where things are moving and, and what their response is. But as I really sat and I prayed and I thought, you know what, Lord, you're showing me this is exactly the posture I should have when I go to pray and to confess my sins before you. You see, the bulk of the verses in 4 through 37, they really start, they start heavy loaded and they roll all the way through it, focused on God and his greatness and his goodness. So the focus of it, even the confession of sin, is one to God and his position and his authority and his greatness and his mercy and his love and what he has done for us. And really after, out of a, the principle of that that I roll, roll down to is that you know, when we truly sit back and have a right and through Scripture allows us to see the lens of God and himself and his holiness and his, his character, that actually gives us the right light and the backdrop to see our own self rightly, to see our own sinfulness and where we have fallen short from a holy God. So I'm going to read a few verses that we go through here. We talk about some of the, the historical events that happened in the the history of Israel as a, as a nation. And this actually is a, we talked about Israel, Ezra last week, and he's a, he actually, a lot of scholars think that he actually penned this prayer out. And we have a group of Levites that names are very hard to pronounce, so I'm just going to jump right over those and go to verse 6. Um, but we have a group of uh, Levites there that actually are leading uh, in this prayer and um, leading the people in, in the prayer itself. So they start out in verse 6 and see if we, as we walk through just thinking about God's goodness and his character. It's odd. I'm not going to stay up in that spot again. I did have an accident. Um, just, I don't know why I'm saying this right now, but thinking about reverberation. Um, one of the big things God used in my life was uh, I, I severely broke my left leg. So I have like a ton of 
of, uh, I've got like two plates and 17 pins and all kind of stuff in this left leg. So I'm kind of, every time something like that happens, I'm scared my leg's going to start moving or do something crazy. So, so hopefully that won't happen up here. Just, if it does, just roll with it. Just stay with me, please, if that happens. Um, verse 6, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that's in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you. You made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. So what we see here in this opening verse is really is very, very key. Uh, it focuses on the covenant of God that he made with Abraham and to give his offspring the promised land. We see that what they, this last verse I read, what this landing point, it says, and you have kept your promise for you are righteous. So everything that flows as we continue to walk through chapter nine, really points back to that promise, to God's goodness, to God holding his promise, to God keeping that covenant. Because it's so important because we see that his people were so unfaithful. So they're always going back and saying, God, yes, we were unfaithful, but you were faithful. You hold us up, Lord. And that's what we'll see as we walk through these verses. Verses 9 through 11, we talk about the history of Israel, covers that. It talks about the mighty works that that God did to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. So it includes a parting of the Red Sea to allow them to, to escape. I'm gonna read verses 12 through 15 for us as we, we continue to focus on the nation of Israel as they have been, have they been freed from bondage of, of Egypt. It says, by a pillar of clouds you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night you led them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and the commandments and, the, and commanded them the commandments and statutes and a law that and the law that Moses your servant and the law and a law by your, your, I'm sorry I messed that all up. I'm going to go back to that. Okay, I'm going to pick up in 14. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded the commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water from them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So we see God's provision. See, one, that he gives um, direction for them. He gives them a pillar of cloud and a fire and a pillar of fire at night to actually guide them on their journey. And, and look what it says about the laws. I think it's very interesting. A lot of times when we think about law, our heart doesn't have the right posture, but we see what Israelites saw the God's law, what they, how they described it. They saw it as right. They saw it as true, and they saw it as good. These were commandments given to them for their joy to guide their lives. And he also provided provision out in the desert. He gave them food, and he gave them water. As we walk through this and we're thinking about at the beginning when I talked about how, to, how we should pray, we see that all this is lifting up God and what God has done. We don't get to a specific a confession of sin until verse 16. In verse 16 uh, through 21 it says, 
But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to their slavery in Egypt. But you are God, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And do not forsake them, and did, and did not forsake them. Even when they themselves made, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And they, and they committed great blasphemies. You're in the great, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud that led them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not behold your manna from their mouths and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So this is a major event in the history of, of Israel. And we see that God had provided for them and I just think it's kind of crazy. If you, if you, you have some time, go to Exodus, Exodus uh, 32, spend it this afternoon, grab a study Bible. It's really talking about this golden calf uh, incident. It's, it's crazy what, what the response is, is God has brought them out, part of the Red Sea. Uh, Moses goes up on the mountain with, with, with God, and he's gone for a little while, and they just, they just lose it. They, like, they think they're lost. They don't know what's going on. They turn to Aaron and say, Aaron says, all right, give me all your gold. I'm going to put it in fire. And uh, he and he ends up makes a, a golden calf and says, "Hey, this is your God. This is who you should worship." Moses comes down. He's he's livid, and and I love Aaron's response. He said, "They they gave me the gold. I threw it in the fire, and out jumped the calf." You know, like it's just crazy what's going on. Um, but this is really in, when you look at the verbiage in verse eighteen. It says, "Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf," that is very very strong. It really points to probably the the most significant or most extreme example of Israel's unfaithfulness. But we see the response in verse 19. It says, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. He continued to give them the pillar of crowd and the fire. He continued to provide for them food. He gave them his, their, his spirit to guide them. And it really, what that shows us, what that shows us is that God continued to care for them and it wasn't due to their obedience. It was strictly due to God's compassion and his love. And that's something we can be very thankful for. In verse 22 through 31, it continues the rhythm of, of God's goodness. And we see the rejection and rebellion of Israel. But then the response, once again, is God's goodness and mercy. We'll see that pattern as, we, as if you continue to read through 22 through 31. And it really covers the Israelites' conquering the land of Canaan that God had promised to them. Verse 26 says, Nevertheless, this is Israel, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind them, behind their backs, and killed your prophets, who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. But we see, that's their rebellion, but what do we see in God's response in 31? It says, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them, for you are gracious and a merciful God. So, 
we finally get to verse 32. You remember you're thinking about this is a prayer of confession, right, uh, of their sins, and we talk about God's goodness, and we go in all this, and then we finally, in 32, we get to the first really petition in this last section. They finally get to the point to petition God. They've lifted up God and, and, and shown who he was and who they are, and they finally get in this last section. This last, last section, now therefore, actually shows the transition, and what I've always been taught, if you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to figure out what's it there for because it's always pointing to something, either verses going behind it or something. something's changing in, in, in the actual flow of the text. And so what we see here is we see the change. They, have, they had rightly acknowledged their past sins. And so now they will actually present an appeal for forgiveness and deliverance from bondage of the Persian rule that they're currently under. So really, the, this closing section is the basis of God's character and covenant that they're really calling on, that they have marked out to be able to go back and pray to God and ask for these things. So, I know some of you are thinking in here, that's a great Bible lesson, little Mr. Bible teacher, little Sunday school guy, you know, what's going on? What, what does that really have to do to me? I mean, what is that, where's the application part as we, we've looked at the nation of Israel and their response? So uh, I'm really glad you asked because that's what I want to close with. There's some application of this text. So you remember we see the book of Nehemiah. We talked about it at the beginning as a historical book, right? But we see it much more than just a, a descriptive narrative of what happened in the life of Israel. We truly believe this book is an example for us today as believers in Jesus Christ of how we should live our life. And so if we believe that, we have to have to start asking us some questions from this text. How does that, how does that apply to me today, right? Um, so what I would like to do first of all is just ask you uh, what we see from, from the beginning of, of, of chapter 8 and, and chapter 9 is we see them being in God's word. So the first application point I'm just going to ask is simply ask for you to ponder in your heart, you know, are you spending time in God's word? Are you truly spending time going to the scriptures, sitting under the authority of God? And if you are, in the words of Kramer, congratulations that you're doing that. But the question is, if you're doing that, what is, what is, what's the result of that time, right? So what is the result of spending time in God's word? Is it really transforming you? Is it really illuminating places where it's leading you uh, to, to confess or it's leading you to see God and his holiness? Or has it just become kind of a, a dead ritual that you just, you're not getting life of? You're just doing it because you've been a Christian or somebody told you you've got to read your Bible and you've just been doing it for years and it's just there. You're just kind of going through the motions. You know, the, the question is, sometimes I think, like, well, am I just going through the motions? Am I just doing this? Am I just getting up? Is this because it's what I'm supposed to do? This is... This is what I'm supposed to do as an elder of a church is to read this and to do that. But kind of the, the, the backdrop as I look at this, this chapter and say, okay, what should be the response that I'm doing that? It should be that I'm stirred to worship God and see his greatness. And that's what we see in the nation of Israel. As they sat under the word, their response was confession, but ultimately seeing God and his glory and his holiness and his provision and what he's done for them in the past. And so, as a believer right now, as you spend time in God's word, I got a specific question, not just about God, but about, about Jesus, about how you see Jesus. When you're, 
when you're in God's word and you think about what Jesus has done in, in the light of the cross, when you really think about the gospel itself, when you think about what Jesus did is what we sang about in the beginning, about him covering us with his, his blood, is removing our sins. When he's on the cross, he, bear, he bore our judgment. And it's not only he, he took our, our judgment on himself, it's unbelievably he gave us his righteousness so that we can stand in his righteousness before the Father on judgment day. So when you think about what Christ did for you on the cross, what does that really do inside of you? Does that stir a, a thankfulness? Does that stir an awe? Does that stir overwhelm you to see the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ to do that, to go to the cross, to bear your sins, to give you his righteousness? And I pray that's what it is. And if, if you're not a, a believer in Jesus Christ and you're here today, I pray that um, we can continue to walk together and we can show you that how that is unbelievably something to, to, to think on, to stir on, and to, to, to rest on that Jesus Christ bore your sins. That he himself gave you his righteousness. And that act, his finished work on your behalf and your faith in it and Christ alone is what it, what it, what it really is this whole thing's about. And then it's our response to it. How is that changing my life? How is that really changing my life? And how should it change my life? And so this section was talking about confession of sin, right? That's the title of it. So I figured as we continue to move to the application, we need to talk about confession a little bit. So what does that really mean? That might have a, that word might be odd for some people based on their background. What does it mean? What are we talking about confession? And it's really rightly acknowledging your sin before God. Um, so I got a few questions when it comes to confession in your life. When was the last time that you were broken by the sinfulness of your heart, if you're a believer here, that you're truly broken by the sinfulness of your own heart. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, just actions. You know, Jesus came on the scene in the Sermon on the Mount. He turned the whole thing up when it came to the law. You know, they just want to say the letter of the law, but he said, no, it's, it's your heart, it's your motives, it's, how, it's your thoughts. So when's the last time you've been truly broken of your, your own sin? So some of, you, some of you, when it comes to law, y'all might be able to keep it good. I mean, you might be able to go to the water park and look up all day long, just looking up. I'm not looking around at anything else. Because you're going to see a lot of stuff at the water park. Some stuff you don't need to see and some stuff you really don't want to see. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we were there Friday. I'll just be honest. I mean, I was looking up and seeing stuff. You get stuck in the wrong line, you just stuck there. You know, you're like, man, I got to choose better next time what line I go in and kind of check it out before I go in here. So luckily my bride was with me. She was helping me hold me accountable the whole time. That's one of the questions, too, we have. So really thinking about your own heart. When were you broken of your sinfulness? And so when was the last time you confessed and sought forgiveness for a specific sin in your life? Not just this global thing. I know I'm not walking with the Lord. I'm not doing really good. But when have you really, truly sat under God's authority, asking him to search your heart, because we've got blind spots. That's why they're called blind spots. And some of us got, you know, blind spots as big as a Mack truck, and we can't see it, and, and we need God to illuminate our heart and to show us these things. We also need people around us. And this is the last one. It says, when was the last time you confessed to a brother or sister in Christ and asked them to hold you accountable in an area of your life that you struggle with? And so that's, that's what is part of being a community, and that's why we have it up here. We, we know that God has called us to to walk beside each other, to help us with our own blind spots, to lovingly walk with us. 
So you see we have individual, but we also have others when it comes to confession of sin and walking through that. So there's an aspect of both individual and corporate worship when it comes to confession of sin. So I'm going to give you a few verses just to kind of nail that down, and then we'll kind of land the plane. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, talking about sin in my life. Well, if, I don't, if I'm not confessing, what, am I saying I'm sinless? And what's going on here? And it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And truly, the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And in James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So we see here in these verses that it's specifically confession to sin is a part of individual but also corporate worship. And when I say that, confession to sin in the presence of others is, is you know, that's, that's where it gets uncomfortable. You're like, man, I'm not sure about that. But what, what we would see and what we would say when we hold up here in Jesus is that it's actually, when you do that, it's applying and celebrating the gospel itself. That you see that your right standing before God is on Jesus alone. It's not about your behavior. It's not how you look. It's not about the mask you wear at the church. That you can do that and be in, be in, have a security in the, your identity as a believer of Jesus Christ based on his work and not yours. So if you hang around the leadership of Docs alone, you'll hear conversations about us really developing a gospel-centered culture where everything kind of looks through, runs through the lens of the gospel. And so culture itself, let me explain a little bit. And we, Some people have odd different definitions of culture, but it's kind of like a layman's term of culture for me is what most people do most of the time. So what most of the people, thinking about in this context in Docs' church, what most of the people do most of the time. So for example, we desire, we truly desire to Doxa to be a safe place for believers and really unbelievers to come and open and wrestle with sin in their lives. Because we truly believe the grace of Christ is bigger than any sin. So if it's, it, it, it could be anything. It could be sexual identity issues. It could be, it, it could be uh, envious issues. It could be lack of stewardship where you're just blowing everything. You wonder why I'm all in this situation at that standpoint. You know, why am I here? What's going on? But we want to be open and allow people to come in and wrestle through that. So I recently was listening. Randy sends me about 47 things a week to listen to and do as we get this church plant thing. And so I, uh, this was one of them that really caught my eye. It came across uh, the thing. It said, lessons I've learned in 25 plus years of church planting. I said, okay, I better listen. I better listen to that one. That sounds like a good one. And he, brought, he provided a great example of church culture within a leadership team that truly speaks to the belief that corporate worship celebrates the gospel. The corporate confession, sorry, corporate confession celebrates the gospel. We're talking about confessing to one another. So this team, this team was, this guy was coming and, uh, to a church, it's a well-known church in Texas, and he was a part of it, and it's a leadership retreat, and they come back from an evening, and the room is all set. You know, the artsy people did their stuff, turned down the lights, and had some music playing and whatnot. And they had a, uh, they all walked in, and they had notebooks on their seats. They all sat down, and the guy leading said, all right, I want you to take your notebook and write in it uh, the sins that you need to confess to God. Just take some time, 
Just think about that. Just think about your walk. What's going on right now to write those things out? So the guy gave the people the time to write those out. So after a little bit of time, then he came back and he said, all right, guys, I want you to write down on the paper in your notebook that sin that you thought you could never write down. But you don't want anybody to know that you just, you just you thought about it, but you're like, I can't, I can't even ink that out. So the team did that. So then next the guy says, all right, I want you to take your notebook, pass it to the person on the right. And so like, the guy laughed. The guy that was there, he did the same thing. He was like, er, like what in the world is going on? Like, I'll be honest, if it was me, I'd be like, no, no, no. Let's, let's do the drill where I take my paper now and I tear it all up and I throw it away and the sins are gone like east and the west. That's what Christ did with it. That's what I want to do. And I don't want to give that notebook. I'd be holding on to it tight. But the point being that what the guy saw as a culture of a church and leadership, they said everybody passed a notebook. He was astounded that, the, that they would do that as a leadership team. And what they believe, one of their beliefs they have in their church is that they believe that you can't battle sin that's secret. You can't step, st- stand, behind a bro- stand beside a brother or sister in Christ and work with them and love them and walk through sinful issues if they're sin secret. So it's something that as a church culture, going back to the definition, it is what most of the people were doing. And we pray that for Doxa Church. We pray that we know, I know that people have been hurt in the past and saying, yeah, you can come in, you can confess some stuff and things go bad. But we pray that God would develop a culture much bigger than, than us and what we can do, that God would do a work. But there's a culture of people that are willing to truly see that the gospel truly celebrates um, and is celebrated when we apply it, when we confess and we walk through messy stuff together. Jamie's gonna come up. He's gonna play for us as we prepare for communion. And also, I'm going to have somebody come up and pass out notebooks, and you can write your stuff down. No, we didn't do that. But I do want to ask you, as we prepare for communion, as we prepare to respond to the gospel, really, and think about our sin, um, truly, first of all, go through that same pattern. Think about God's goodness, what he's done in your life, what scripture paints out God to be, and his character, and his love, and his mercy. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to sit down. I'm going to give you some time just to continue just to, to be before the Lord. Then I'll come up, and, and Randy, and we'll, we'll serve communion. So if you're a believer in Christ, uh, the table's open to you. Uh, we believe this is a, a time where as a believer we can come and respond, and we can, we can partake of the body and the blood of Christ and really land on the gospel, and knowing that as we walk through this process that it's God and, and it's Jesus and his finished work that we can even come before, before the Lord. So let me pray for you. And then as you feel led, come and partake of communion. Lord, we, Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Jesus, that you came to establish a new and better covenant that we so desperately needed. Because of your work on the cross, we can absolutely trust that if we confess our sins, they will be forgiven. And they will be cleansed from all, and we will be cleansed from all unrighteousness. Lord, we pray for a culture where most of the people most of the time respond to, to this truth that the, that the grace of Christ is bigger than any sin. And Lord, I ask for forgiveness for us and for for your church universal where we have fallen to truly believe that 
where people have come out in circles and been vulnerable and needing help and, and they've been met with, without love, they've been met without mercy. Lord, I pray that you would, you would raise up in us, you would transfer us individually so corporately we could, we could serve you rightly in this community. Lord, I pray that you would continue to stir in our hearts as we have this time to approach your, approach your table. Do, Lord, what only you can do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.